0: Hi guys it's adam from samson's hair care here i wanted to let you know that when you use the code bluegrass on our website samsonshaircare.com bluegrass will save you 10 percent and go to support this wonderful podcast the walls of time sharing the history and stories of bluegrass
1: welcome to walls of time field interviews with the best in bluegrass As one of the most awarded fiddle players in bluegrass music today, Michael Cleveland's career is still unfolding. Born visually impaired, Michael has had a unique journey as an artist. In this two-part episode, Daniel sits down with Michael in Raleigh, North Carolina, backstage during rehearsal for the 2019 IBMA Awards show, as Michael shares his story of becoming an accomplished master of bluegrass fiddling. Michael talks about his influences, his philosophy of music, and his intense study of the instrument and music that molded him into the fiddling tour de force he is today. Enjoy this first part of Daniel's interview with the National Fiddler Hall of Fame member, Michael Cleveland.
0: So, Michael, we were talking, when was the first time that you ever picked up a fiddle?
2: Uh, I guess it would have been, uh, I was really, really little, like probably three or four. I actually started playing when I was four, but it seemed like maybe even uh, prior to that, that somebody had given me a fiddle, uh, like a full-size fiddle. That that was not, you know, like I've, it it was too big for me at the time. And I don't even think it had any strings on it or anything. So I just had this, so that might have been the first one I ever really picked up. But then I, uh, when I started school, I started at the uh, Kentucky School for the Blind when I was four. uh, And they had a, they had a classical Program the Suzuki method, and so I started uh, learning violin there. Uh, classical music. Mm-hmm. You
0: mentioned the the Kentucky School for the Blind. What were some things that you that going to that school helped empower you or, or teach you about uh, being visually impaired?
2: Well, you know, I mean, a lot of it I didn't think about at the time. You know, like it was all just pretty normal to me you know it it was just nobody really and the cool thing about going to to a school for the blind and i know there's there's a lot of people who uh there's a lot of kids who go to, to public schools who are visually impaired or whatever but going to a school for the blind you're around people you're around a lot of people who are uh, you know blind and or they and it's no big deal like they the whole thing is you know you got yeah like some of the teachers a lot of the teachers are, are visually impaired you know to some degree and so it was never this big deal about you know being blind because that's that's what they they taught you, that you know you could do anything you wanted to do, so um, I, I think that was really good for me.
0: You said you didn't really think about it that much growing up because it was just normal. But as you grew into adulthood, did you realize why that was so empowering? For to learn that it's really not that big of a deal.
2: Well, yeah, and I I really feel fortunate that um, that I could be around people like that it just i I think i think i didn't realize that it was such that that it was as big a deal until i got out and was playing some you know and and you know sometimes people would act a little or not you know they would like not know how to act yeah or not know how to talk to you or or whatever and you know i'd be like well why why are they being weird what's wrong you know (laughs) uh but yeah, I, I was very fortunate uh, to to be around. You know, uh, all the all the people there at the school. There were some amazing people who who just uh, like kids, teachers, and students alike that it would just blow your mind. You you mentioned uh,
0: to me as well that they had a, a really good music program at that school that you were a part of.
2: They did when when I first started there. And, and for, for quite a few years, they had, uh, they had a strings program and, uh, I think they, they had a brass band, they had a string program and then they had like the, you know, what they called the pep band, which would play for all the, uh, pep rallies and all that kind of thing. And so that was more of a, like a classic rock, you know, more 60s, 70s, 80s rock and that was that was really cool at that time there were there were some talented people like the there were some really excellent musicians and so uh yeah we had we had a killer uh pep band for a while and then uh the strings strings program was like full orchestra or yeah, you know, all the strings anyway—bass, and cello, and viola, and violin—and it it was pretty cool.
0: You mentioned that you know you played in the strings program, but you also played electric guitar in the pep band as I well, did. didn't you?
2: Well, uh, I was never in the pep band. I think I might have filled in one day, but right. I was. Um, so what happened? Uh, my teacher, uh, my violin teacher. Uh was not a fan of bluegrass and i i think it was one of the one of these things where you you hear something on the radio or you see somebody play on tv and you think that's the music you know so if you hear a bad example of something and i i think she had heard i don't know what she heard but she uh must saw somebody like Doug Kershaw or something. He was, he was on Late
0: Night a lot back then, wasn't he?
2: Well, you know, you're right. That's, that probably is what it was. But, I mean, Doug Kershaw, you know, he played really hard. He was a great Cajun player. Yeah. But he would play really hard and, like, rip bow hair out of the bow and, you know, kind of... Uh, he was kind of crazy, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Raging Cajun. <laughs> that's, that's right. they called him. But... <laughs> And so I don't know if it was that but my teacher uh really did not want me playing bluegrass at all and and she was convinced that it was gonna hurt my playing and so she she didn't wanna even, you know, hear me talking about it or, or anything. And so I would like I would play classical during the week and then play bluegrass on the weekends once I got to a point where I could play a couple things.
0: She clearly hadn't heard someone like Kenny Baker or no, Bobby Hicks that really th- has got the skill that she you know respects and, right. and looks for in a in a player.
2: Well, that's the thing, you know. When I came back later, because uh, because what happened, uh, and uh, I kind of got sidetracked. But what happened is is uh, uh, when I was about twelve, uh, I got to, I was. To the point where i could play a little bit and i've made it through a few of the suzuki books and and she wanted me uh my violin teacher miss nolan she wanted me to go do some uh summer workshops and of course that was festival season yeah. and i mean i was going to bean blossom <laughs> and you know so so she pretty much gave me an ultimatum and said uh you know you you either you know, you need to choose one or the other. And I was really, you know, I was sorry to hear that, you know, but uh, I said, well, this is a no-brainer. You know, I'm going to play bluegrass because, I mean, I like some of the classical stuff, and I enjoyed learning it, and without it, I guarantee you I would not be able to play. Uh, But, I mean, I just bluegrass was all i've ever really wanted to do yeah so um so i left the uh the strings program for a few years and i just kind of i don't even know seemed like i didn't even play music at school for a while and then i uh i got into uh uh electric guitar and so i started taking band every day uh with the david hume our our band teacher really awesome teacher and uh so i was taking band class and and there was a point where i would hang out at school uh after until uh one of my folks got off work and and they would come pick me up and my band teacher told me he's like you know you ought to just uh, if you want, after school, just come over to the, to the music room and you can play guitar or, or hang out or whatever. I'm, I'm uh, going to be here until about 5 or 6 anyway. So, so that worked out great. I'd just go over after school and, and play. And, and uh, one time, you know, a couple other students that I knew uh, came in. One was a great drummer. And then uh, the other one was a keyboard player, and we we just ended up jamming. And we would get together, like, every, I don't know, uh, Monday and Wednesday or whatever, you know, and play. And the band teacher would play bass with us. And it was only ever for fun, you know. I think we might have done one concert at school, but, I mean, we worked up, you know, all the... I mean, we did Skinner and you know, Tom Petty, and I don't know what else we did. We All the fun stuff. Oh, man, yeah. It, and it was great. It was great to uh, to try and learn some of that stuff. And you
0: said that you had most of the solos down note for note, but they had one thing that solos, they kept saying. About
2: for it. Note, I play those solos as close as I could get it to the record, and I'm, I, I think I've got a pretty good ear, and so I would I would get it pretty close, and I and I would play it note for note, and and they, like somebody would always, man, you sound like a country player, <laughs> and I just could not get rid of that. I don't know, I guess I'm just when I think electric guitar, I just think Telecaster. So. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with the Self Journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self-Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done, with features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase.
0: A lot of people think that if you're impaired in one sense, that your other senses overcompensate. And you mentioned that you have a great ear. Do you think that's true and that, that your ear and your ability to pick out notes and tones and sounds is more sensitive um than than other people i
2: mean i i'm
0: I'm sure you've probably heard that before i
2: have and i think the only way that you would ever be able to know that is like if you weren't born visually impaired and then you lost your sight you know then you might be able to that's the thing it's like you know i've i was born blind you know so i i really haven't uh I mean, this is you know, it's just the way it's always been, yeah. so I really don't have anything to compare it to other than to say that I do know that that it helps like a lot of teachers tell people to practice in a dark room or yeah. or practice you know, and don't look at your hand yeah. um, and so I guess I guess there there probably is something to that and then also, there were some people at my school. That would just blow your mind. I mean, like, I I can identify notes. If somebody plays a note, uh, I can tell you what it is. But there are people, there there were kids who went to my school that had perfect pitch to such a degree that they could tell you, for instance, like what note a typewriter was. Oh, really? Yeah, that really. Or like banging on this sink. Yeah, yeah, they could yeah, tell you. They what could that tell is. you yeah. They could tell you even or things that like a knock or something. Yeah, yeah. That that wouldn't even to me even uh, seem like a note, and you know, it'd be more like a percussive sound or whatever. But they could, they could tell you, you know, what pitch, even things like that were. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, just way way beyond what what I could ever hear.
0: You mentioned that you know you, it came to a point where you had to choose whether you were going to keep with the the classical violin uh-huh. or stick with your love for bluegrass fiddle. Um, who were some of your favorite bluegrass fiddlers that you looked up to and wanted to emulate?
2: Well, uh, there were a lot of great local players that I got to be around. Uh, there's this guy named Jeff Guernsey who. Uh, this from Henryville, Indiana, it's the same town that, that I was born in. And so he was kind of the guy. He was like the the legend, like the local guy that everybody says, well, if you keep going, you'll be as good as Jeff Guernsey. And so uh, he didn't come around a whole lot, but I was able to go to his house and take some lessons, and, and I had recordings of his. And uh, there were some other fiddle players. There was a great Indiana fiddler named Paul Goodpasture, and he was he was a great bluegrass fiddle player. Jim Strong, he was another one that, uh, and I mean, both of these guys, you hear him play, and I mean, they they play bluegrass fiddle like you hear on records. Yeah. And, you know, the only reason they just never went out was because they all have families and, uh I mean there were great musicians in the area, just any any instrument, whatever, you know. And so I got to be around a lot of those guys. Ron Stewart. Uh yeah. Ron Stewart lived in Paoli, Indiana. And so he he would show up uh to my grandparents' thing or her one of the local Your uh, grandparents' jam that they would have. Yeah, right. yeah. That my grandparents had this thing. It was more like an open stage thing. So uh, people could show up and sign up for, for a slot, like a 30 minute slot. And uh, it started at like 7 o'clock. A bunch of people would get there early and jam. And then you would um, you play, uh, the, the, the show started at 7, and it would go. I remember sometimes it would go till like 11 or even midnight and still couldn't get all the bands on there for the 30 minute slots each man yeah i mean that's a lot of bands that's There's a lot, lot of bands and so uh, just being around that man it was was pretty cool for me you mentioned uh so many great
0: fiddlers in your area, and how vibrant the bluegrass scene was where you grew up in Indiana. Yeah. How how instrumental do you think that was in your development as a bluegrass picker?
2: Oh man, I it it was huge, and and I realize it more and more uh, as there is really nothing going on like that anymore, unfortunately, in the area, and so. Now, you know, if you want to put a jam together, you pretty much have to put it together. There's no, there's no local thing like there, there used to be three, three places that you could go on, you know, each, yeah, alternating Saturday nights and, and now there's none of that. And so, but yeah, and, uh, getting back to the, the. Influences, you know, like from from listening to all these great local players. Of course, you know they they said, you know, man, you need to listen to Flat Scruggs and Bill Monroe and uh, you know Ralph Stanley Stanley Brothers and Reno Smiley and Jimmy Martin, and so um, and I was around a lot of people who were quite a bit older. There were no kids that I remember being around all the time that we're trying to learn how to play and like until i was about 12 years old and then at that point i met nathan Libers, our mandolin player yeah and, uh but yeah before that i mean pretty much everybody i was playing with or, or was around was quite a bit older and i think that's good because what they were into was the old stuff you know they were into to all the guys who set the standards and that's what they all played so so that had to help form a real bedrock on your on your bluegrass
0: knowledge that other kids your age might not have been privy to
2: yeah yeah and uh i mean as far as stuff i would listen to like you could it was really easy to find these uh compilation albums uh like 30 fiddler's greatest hits and 16 fiddle instrumentals you know and yeah. like all these uh and so you get to hear you know like they would all pretty much have the same tunes on them you know they'd be yeah. like of course you know orange blossom and you know sally Gooden" and uh leather britches and a lot of the standard fiddle tunes but depending on which album you got you know you you might hear You know, if you got this album, you could hear Benny Martin play, you know, the Orange Blossom special. Or if you got this album, you could hear Scotty Stoneman. And it was like two different things. And just listening to all these players, you know, put their own spin on these tunes, I I think gave me uh, something to kind of work from and, and to try to imitate. You're a, you're a real student
0: of the bluegrass fiddle Michael and and studying and, and knowing about all the fiddlers uh, in in bluegrass history what how do you try to build on that knowledge while also carving your own path in today's bluegrass scene
2: Well I don't know you know I was just always really interested in it it's like baseball players or anything else it's like uh or baseball fans you know uh but I, I, always wanted to know kind of where, where it all came from. I think I think the way that started when I was about twelve. I uh, I was playing this festival in Indiana, and there was this guy named Dave Samuelson who who was uh, he came he'd seen me play somewhere, and he said, "Man, if you're gonna be a fiddle player, you need to." Uh, You need to listen to to some of these guys. I'm going to make you a bunch of tapes the next time I see you. And uh, I thought, yeah, right. Sure you are. You know. And, you know, I didn't think anything about it. And then I ran into him about a month later and he had a whole box of tapes. Oh, wow. And they were all Braille labeled. Oh, wow. And he, not only that, but he, uh, he would introduce every tape. Like he would, uh, he would get on there and say, you know, okay, uh, this is a session with Chet Atkins, and it's got, you know, Bob Moore on the bass and, and Dale Potter on the fiddle, and he would he would basically go through all the, you know the musicians when it was recorded. It, this guy's like Eddie Stubbs. Yeah. Like he, he <laughs> he's made, real
0: into to the, the Yeah. The the history and the specifics and oh, the, yeah. who and was the, where when and the liner notes and metadata of all that yeah. stuff
2: I guess. Oh yeah. And and could just rattle it yeah rattle it off like it was nothing. And so he made me a ton of stuff. Like he 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 made me you know, some bluegrass stuff, but he also gave me like some Stefan Grappelli and Joe Benoudti yeah. and stuff smith and and these jazz and swing players and even people like dale potter which i hadn't heard uh as much and i mean i there must have been like over 20 of these cassettes that basically you know he instead of just recording the albums like he would you know certain songs he's like i want you to pay attention to this this solo you know, or, or pay attention to, to what, you know, what's going on behind a singer, you know, or, or pay, you know, and so, just, I think from that, it gave me, it got me interested in, like, where, why people play the way they play, yeah. it's like, you know, you listen to Stuart Duncan, Stuart Duncan's a great fiddle player, and if you don't go beyond that, like, which you, you know, Stewart listened to Kenny Baker and, um, you know, well, all the guys, all the great fiddlers. But, you know, you, you have to go further back and then you can hear all this stuff, you know, as it as it was. And you could hear Stefan Grapelli play a lick and it's like, well, that's a bluegrass lick. Yeah. You know, Chubby Wise and those guys, you know, they were just playing what was on the radio at the time. And so, you know, there was no bluegrass, so they were pulling things, you know, from ideas from, like, horn players or, you know, these jazz players like uh, Joe Vanuti or Grappelli or, you know, whoever. And so to, to be... I, I was always interested in that part of it, just to, to, uh, to figure out where it all came from and why people, why people play the, the way that they do. And who their influences were, and there's just so much cool stuff on on those recordings, and they they don't sound they don't sound like CDs or they you know like a lot of the you know the first version of Sally Gooden was like a wax master recorded in front of a great big horn, and it pretty much the, the quality of the recording sounds like that, but. <laughs> Like, you listen to the fiddle playing, and I mean, this is like Sally Gooden, the way you would hear anybody play it today, only it was in 1922, and it was by, you know, Eck Robertson, this great Texas player. But, uh, I just, I was always interested in in stuff like that. Yeah. Um... You can tell this is a
0: real bluegrass podcast. I think that's the Earl's of Lester rehearsing on uh-huh. the other side of the wall. But um, you, you mentioned how you, you've always been curious and always eager to learn about the fiddle and ask questions and, and learn learn about things. I think that was, uh my dad said the first time he remembered seeing you was one of those summers at Bean Blossom. Yep. And you were uh, asking my grandpa questions about Orange yep. Blossom Special, I think it was.
2: Yep, I drove everybody nuts. That's <laughs> what I did. As my dad told me one time, he's like, man, these guys hate to see you coming, man. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you ask about Orange Blossom Special one more time. <laughs> you but, said that was a song that got you hooked oh, on Oh, it fiddle. was, man. And i yeah i mean i was all about it and <laughs> what about that particular tune i have no idea uh, i i guess just the the sound you know like the train sounds and uh it was fast you know i was always into that and <laughs> um i i don't really know uh i don't know just maybe the the energy and energy of it you know it's probably a big part of it but uh and just the fact that that many sounds could come out of a fiddle you yeah. know so you uh
0: you said you you didn't hesitate to ask people of, about the music you were trying to learn and soak up um what advice would you give for a young picker that is is looking to to learn how to play or, or improve their playing in this business? Is that something you would en- you encourage young pickers to do?
2: Oh, for sure. Um, the, uh, I, what I always, what, what I did is, I mean, I was, uh, I mean, I was really into it. it. It wasn't like, it wasn't like it was something that my parents thought I should do. And there are so many kids out here today that that's, that's the deal. You know, the kid has got some talent, and they may like it or, or whatever, but you see the parents dragging them around and, and, you know, basically living their dream through the kid. Yeah, and just
0: kind of living vicariously through kids, them. Yeah,
2: and that, I can't stand that. I mean, and the, the, the main reason is, is because the kid does not get to be a kid. Yeah. And... It just and music becomes a chore, and it was never like that for me. Thank God, you know, my my folks, uh, my parents and my grandparents, they they all. I I never I never thought you know that I had to do it or whatever. Of course, if I committed to to play a show or, or be somewhere, you know, obviously I was going to do that, but. Like, I never, you know, my dad told me when I was first starting to do contests, he said, You know, I just want you to know, you know, we're, if, if you get to the point where you don't want to do this anymore, that's fine. You know, don't think, you know, that, that you have to do, you, you have to keep playing or, or whatever. So that, just knowing that, uh, and having the support you know, it could go both ways, I guess, you know, if, if, uh, cause I do, I do know some people who just never really had the the opportunities that I had. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very fortunate for that as well. Um, uh, like my buddy, Brian Allen, he's, he's a uh, visually impaired as well. It's like great. Uh, he works on small engines, believe it or not. And, and is an incredible guitar player. But he he never I don't think uh, had some of the opportunities that it, had he had uh, some of that and and would would have been able to be you know out at festivals and and all that kind of thing. I mean he he could do anything that that I've done. It's just tremendous musician. So I guess. I was really fortunate that uh, my parents and my grandparents, none of them ever really pushed me to play. And it was never like, it was never that at all.
0: They never pushed you beyond what you wanted to do yourself. Yeah. Yep. Hi, guys. Adam from Sampson's Hair Care here. I wanted to let you know about a new product we've released called texture powder. You just sprinkle it in, work it into your roots and it provides you with volume and hold and texture while leaving your hair looking natural. Give it a shot. Use the code bluegrass on our website to save 10% off your total. Now I asked Sierra Hole the same question. Uh, like you, uh, she showed tremendous talent and promise at a young age oh and 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 you did as well um and i'm sure that the word prodigy was bestowed on you at a young age or you heard people use that term did did that ever add pressure to you knowing that that people thought that highly of you at a young age not at at that time at that
2: time i was too stupid to be nervous (laughs) or like i man i sometimes sometimes i look back at some of that stuff it's like man i wasn't you know i didn't even think about it and i i I really took a lot of it not not everything but just being around you know it's being able to go to being blossom and see bill monroe you know i mean you don't think about you know you know one of these days bill monroe is not going to be here you know and so i think at that time you know I, w- I wasn't even thinking in those terms i was just thinking you know i i just wanted to play i wanted to either play or be listening to music or or be be in a jam session all night somewhere
0: you love to jam probably yeah. more than anybody i've seen michael
2: i love it man i don't get to do it as much anymore it's just for whatever reason. But, yeah, I love to pick.
0: What about jamming um, do you think will will help people that are, are looking to, to hone their craft as a picker?
2: Well, I think, uh, well, just being around players who are better than you and and sometimes, like, way better. Like, I we... Um, I mentioned all the local players that, that I got to be around pretty much every week and then you know when they're you know when my grandparents didn't have a show or something like that we'd load up and go to a fiddle contest or, or a bluegrass festival and you know it wasn't it wasn't just people in the backyard anymore it, it was like you know you could be out there and and, and jam with anybody. And, uh, I remember the first year I went to IBMA, uh, I was 13 years old and I was there as part of, uh, Pete Warnick's, uh, Bluegrass Youth All-Stars, but everybody was there and it just seemed like everybody was hanging out, jamming. And, uh, I miss, I miss that. You know, it just seemed like at that time, everybody, everybody wanted to pick. And so, like, after the awards show, I ended up, we were walking around, and we uh, stumbled onto this jam, and it was Doc Watson and Tim O'Brien and Dan Crary and uh, Beppi Gambetta, the great Russian guitar player. And, I mean, all these guys are just sitting there jamming. And uh, my, I think my dad asked, you know, is it okay if he plays one or... Whatever, so I ended up jamming with them. Got to meet everybody, met Doc, and wow. you know that was really cool. And then, I mean, we probably picked for for an hour and a half or whatever. And then uh, somebody said, "Well, Byron Burline's jamming at at the uh, at the hotel in the lobby," and so we went over there, and you know, we probably picked with them, you know, until like yeah. three or four. In the morning, you know, and so it was, but it, I think that's what really helped was not only just getting to play with local people, but to be, you know, to, to get to go to all these festivals and to go to the contests. Man, like you go to a fiddle contests, like they're primarily fiddle contests, but they'll have a guitar and a mandolin and banjo, pretty much anything you could think of, Um, and, you know, the main thing is obviously the fiddle, you know, and they have like several rounds of that, but man, you talk about some talented, really talented kids, Um, I mean, they would just go out there and wear it out, and just to be, I, I think that pretty much showed me kind of where i was and what i needed to work on and you know it just to to hear that many good players you know you really get a sense of where you are and 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 what to work on if you want it to be any better
0: so you allow that to motivate you and push you to be a better picker
2: yeah and i would say you know anybody that that was starting you know uh whether they be young or not you know like I mean, what I did is I'd, I, was saturated with I, like I listened to every, I listened to every bluegrass record I could get my hands on. Any fiddle player, you know, I wanted to wanted to hear, know all about it. And you know, I was just in the middle of it, and that's all I, that's all I thought about. Mm-hmm. You mentioned being a part
0: of those that Youth Bluegrass All Stars. What year was that? Ninety-five. That was uh, ninety-three. Ninety-three. Yeah, I know that was a uh, for for a lot of people in this industry, that was their introduction to you on a national level outside of Indiana.
2: Man, I still have people come up to me at the record table, and it's I'm, I mean it's everywhere we go. And if nothing else, they'll say, "Man, I got a video of you, you know, playing." I got a video of you playing with them kids. And I got a video of you playing with Doc Watson, you know? Yeah. And like people.
0: Man, well, it, which is amazing because in a day bef- before the internet was in the home of everybody's hand, that was about yeah. a, that was like going viral essentially. Yeah, and if, they, they, if they'd, they'd had the
2: internet, you'd, who knows what? <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. I know, man. For listeners of the podcast
0: that may not be familiar with the legend of the '93 Youth All Stars in Bluegrass, why don't you tell <laughs> legend? legend why, why don't you uh, tell our listeners who who all uh, you picked with on stage that day? And it was. For pretty much everybody that was on stage, that was kind of bluegrass as a scene. Their introduction to all you kids,
2: yeah. And uh, the, what brought that all on? Uh, apparently, there was an article written in the uh, Washington Post uh, where they were talking about bluegrass was dying, and you know there there weren't a lot of young people that were interested in playing or, or learning how to play. And so Pete Warner he was like bothered by the article and so he wanted to put together uh, a band of of kids to uh, kind of prove that article wrong and so uh, I had jammed uh, with Josh Williams and I think his dad uh, recommended me to Pete uh, in putting this band together so it was was me and, and Josh Williams uh, Josh uh, was primarily playing banjo at the time uh, and he had a little band uh, called Josh Williams and high Gear it's <laughs> a good band name <laughs> it was yeah and so like it was it was me and Josh and Cody Kilby and, and
0: cody was playing guitar
2: well yeah. they, they switched off they both uh they both played everything but they yeah. they were both great guitar players and banjo players okay. so i think in the middle we played wheelhouse and i think in the middle of it somewhere they switched and, and played a <laughs> played a twin banjo solo or something i've uh, but so so yeah pete uh am and, and i i should mention that Uh, He called me about this, and this is how old school I was. I had no idea who Pete Warnick was. (laughs) He called, and I mean, it's like, uh, who are you? And he's, uh, I'm Pete Warnick. I play with this band, Hot Rise. Oh, yeah, who's that? I had no clue. It wasn't Bill Monroe or somebody like that. (laughs) You know, so you didn't uh, go
0: before about 1958, did you? I, guess, I mean, didn't go I after guess,
2: 1958, did you? Yeah, <laughs> I guess. But man, get uh, getting to be a part of that, and then just getting to be here.
0: Well, and there were some other folks in the band too, wasn't? Yeah, there? So you it was and Josh and Cody,
2: Josh and Cody, and then uh, Chris Thiele was playing mandolin, and he was just far beyond anything I'd ever heard at that point, uh, and still is. Uh, but you could tell even then, man, that he, this guy, like, he was so far above the rest of us uh, musically. It was just, it was like playing with an adult, you know, that, that really just wore it out. And so it was me and Chris, Cody and Josh, and uh, Pete couldn't find a bass player, and it was getting pretty close, and he's like, man, what are we, I need to find a bass player that's like 12 or 13 or something like that. And uh, we were at a, a local jam, and, and my buddy Brady Stockdell, who's a local player in Indiana, guitar player, uh, we ended up jamming, and I think I was, I ended up playing guitar, and, and he was playing bass. And so after we found out he played a little bass, you know, it's like we call Pete. And so he made his bass playing debut <laughs> on the stage of of IBMA <laughs> uh, on the awards show. I mean, like Allison Krauss just hanging out, you know, it's like all anybody you can imagine. You and know. he's
0: playing bass on stage yeah. for the first time. <laughs> yeah,
2: man. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how. How nerve wracking that would be, but uh, so yeah, I got that. That was kind of how that came about.
0: Well, whenever you see those guys, whenever you see Josh or Cody or, or Chris, do you do you ever talk about that or reminisce about that? Yeah, that a special yeah, kinship some...
2: you guys share? Oh yeah, you know, just just being part of that. You know, we actually got to do a uh, what was I think we did a ten year reunion, uh, and that. that was like close to 20 years ago so (laughs) probably by the time we're all in our like 60s or so they'll get us back out there (laughs) time for another reunion
0: (laughs) michael cleveland our special guest today on the walls of time bluegrass podcast He's the most awarded fiddler in IBMA history, and his journey is so remarkable. It was a treat to have him on uh, for the first of two episodes on our podcast.
1: That's right, and uh, he's worthy of two episodes for sure. It's fantastic to hear about uh, uh, Michael Cleveland's stories coming up in school and uh, learning uh, how to play classical music and then eventually just falling in love with bluegrass and taking that, uh, despite uh, taking that to, to new places, despite his uh, educators' doubt that he could make a living at doing that, I thought that was really great. That they were uh, telling him, "Son, you'll you'll never make it in bluegrass music." But uh, not only has he made it, he's uh, exploded onto the scene as a young person, and we've all just watched him grow up, being this fantastic uh, artist, uh, fiddle player. He can play mandolin, incredibly great. I I think more than anyone else on YouTube, I probably searched for Michael's performances just because he's got such great bands through the years. He's had such great players with him. And, uh, yeah, I feel like we've all just grown up uh, these folks that are your age and my age, Daniel. We just sort of grow up watching Michael become this fantastic uh, performer and now all these accolades and, of course, his Grammy win this, this past year.
0: You mentioned his mandolin playing. I know you're you're currently getting together the Michael Cleveland playlist for Spotify, but you've got to check out one of my favorite Michael Cleveland mandolin uh, recordings is actually on a Danny Paisley record. Uh, we had Danny on season one of our podcast, but Danny Paisley and the Southern Grass do the Alcatraz Island Blues, which is an old Delmore Brothers song. It was on... Uh, Danny Paisley album from about five or six years ago and Michael plays mandolin on it and it he just eats it eats it up you got to check it out it's uh for folks that aren't familiar like you said Michael is not just a great fiddler fantastic mandolin player he is a wonderful guitar player I've seen jam sessions at IBMA where Michael's played guitar and just just chewing up up and down the neck playing Doc Watson style stuff playing Reno style guitar it's it's awesome. He's truly a talent and as you mentioned, I think it is remarkable the story of him going to the school for the blind and how they said you can do anything that you you would like to. Except play bluegrass, and just because they didn't, just because they didn't think it was a lucrative enough profession, had nothing to do with Michael's ability that they doubted that he could make a living in bluegrass, and were trying to steer him in other directions. We're glad that he went with his heart and trusted his gut on that one for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks for telling me about that uh, Paisley recording. I wasn't aware that was him on the mandolin. Uh, I'll add that to the playlist. Uh, you know, Michael's done so much over the years; it's hard to even keep up with all the little, you know, projects really he's been with, of course he's led his own band for so long. And, uh, but yeah, it's funny with him. He just, you you can't underestimate it. He'll pop up everywhere because he just truly loves this music. As you hear in this interview and, uh, he loves to play it. He loves to play with people, uh, that of course he'll always say that all these folks are better than him because he's humble and always learning, I suppose. But, uh, he's a hard one to beat as far as um, uh, his craftsmanship and uh, the attention and the, and the intensity that he gives to his playing. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit in the second part of this interview, what happened when he went back to his school after so many years, after he'd had some success and was uh, currently in the band with Rhonda Vincent, he tells a great little story that I believe will be in uh, the second part of this two-part interview with Michael.
0: Oh, the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. We will continue our conversation with Michael Cleveland next week. Be sure you don't miss a minute of it. Listen and subscribe. Uh, to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, so you don't miss an episode, and they'll they'll show up right in your podcast library as soon as new episodes release. So be sure to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you enjoy the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast.
1: And of course, we're on all our social medias at Walls of Time Podcast at Instagram and Facebook, Walls of Time Pod on Twitter, and you can go to our website too. You can support us, you can leave comments, you can buy a t shirt and. That's one of the ways we're raising funds to continue to bring you these episodes every week. And we look forward to
0: having uh, part two next week with Michael Cleveland. Until next time. Thanks for listening.
3: Walls of time. Bluegrass podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins edited by Daniel Mullins and is a production of blue poncho media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.